there is always a turning point. In everything from a presidential race to a pennant chase, there is always a decisive moment that dramatically alters the outcome. There's a turning point. And tonight we come to the turning point in Ezekiel. God initiates a new emphasis. The prophecies take on a new tone. The prophetic tide begins to turn. For 24 chapters, Ezekiel has broadcast the demise of Jerusalem. And he hasn't offered much hope, quite frankly. He didn't say, if God judges. No, he said, when God judges. His call to repentance was not to avoid judgment. It was to soften the blow. If they obeyed God, the lessons they were destined to learn would have been less painful. Ezekiel chapters 1 through 24 were his judgments on the Jews and Judah. Whereas chapters 25 through 32 were the calamity that God was going to bring on Judah's surrounding neighbors. But a turning point now occurs in chapter 33. Remember, Ezekiel is living in Babylon. Jerusalem has fallen. The temple has burned. The walls have been toppled. The Jews have been deported back to Babylon. The people who were once the apple of God's eye are now slaves in a foreign land. Is there a future for God's people? Is there any hope? And the answer was yes. You remember Jeremiah who prophesied around this same time. He spoke for God and said, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Yes, there was a future and a hope. And Ezekiel now joins in Jeremiah's encouragement. God will return his people to their land. He'll bless them again. In fact, Israel's brightest days are still ahead. God has a future for the Jews in Israel. As we'll see over the next few weeks, what Ezekiel spoke of 2,500 years ago is actually coming true before our very eyes today. Ezekiel chapter 33 begins with these words. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying. Now this is the recommissioning of Ezekiel. God is going to renew Ezekiel's call, his call on Ezekiel's life. You know, often God does this for us. We lose focus. We need to recalibrate. And so God will come and he will renew his calling. It's like this congregation I know at a Calvary Chapel in Stone Mountain, Georgia. This church loves Jesus. This church I'm talking about. It loves Jesus. This church serves the Lord wholeheartedly. But they just can't clap on beat. That's their problem. They got lousy rhythm. And their worship leaders are always having to keep the people in sync, helping the people stay on beat. And this is what the Holy Spirit has to do with us. He renews his callings. He repeats his promises. He claps for us. And he gets us back in rhythm with his will And this is what he's going to do in this chapter for Ezekiel. Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, when I bring the sword upon a land and the people of that land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning If the sound comes and takes him away, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword, that is this army coming, and he does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, And the sword comes and takes any person from among them. He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Now you recall when God first called Ezekiel, he used this same analogy to get the young priest's attention and to stress the seriousness of his mission. With these words, in fact, God had turned Ezekiel the priest into a prophet. It was his job to trumpet God's truth and to warn God's people. God had made Ezekiel a watchman on the wall. 
Ancient cities were almost always surrounded by large stone walls. These walls protected them against wild animals and roaming bandits and ultimately invading armies. The watchman was posted on top of the walls. He kept a lookout. And this was Ezekiel's assignment. God called him to be a spiritual lookout. He warned the Jews of coming dangers. Once he'd done his job, his job was done. Ezekiel, as well as all God's spokesmen, needed to be reminded the difference between his responsibility and the people's response. You and I need this same understanding. Our job is to blow the trumpet. How the people react to that sound, that warning, is up to them. It's really out of our control how they react. You see, if Ezekiel is faithful, but if the people refuse to take heed, we're told then their blood was on their own head. But if the watchman refuses to sound the alarm, if he doesn't want to upset anybody or disrupt the people's normal routine, or if he's afraid they won't like him, or they might retaliate against him, and he remains mute, if he doesn't sound the warning, then their blood will be on the watchman's hands. And in a sense, this applies to all of us. Every Christian is a spiritual lookout. You are a watchman on the wall. We have a vantage point others lack. We know God. We see life through God's eyes. We have His Word. And we have people within our walls, people within the sphere of our influence for which we're responsible. There are times when it's our duty to sound the alarm. There's dangers approaching we can't ignore. We can't just say, oh, well, I'll let my actions do the talking. Oh, yes, we all should be a good example. But there comes a time when we have to blow the trumpet. There comes a time when we have to open our mouths and speak up. It's been said some Christians are like the Arctic River, frozen over at the mouth. As God's watchman, Ezekiel needs to discern where his responsibility ends and the people's responsibility begins. So God says to him in verse 7, So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. This is an ominous chapter. Watchmen have heavy responsibility. Who are the people within the walls of your life? Who is within this of in, was it, who is within the sphere of your influence? You know, it differs for each of us. But I think for all of us, we can include our kids, our family, our friends, maybe our neighbors, perhaps a few co-workers. For some of us, God has set us over a congregation, a community. See, Ezekiel had the responsibility of watching over an entire nation. And the watchman is responsible to sound the alarm, to warn those within his sphere of influence of coming danger. Realize this chapter can create a terrible bondage in a believer's life if he or she doesn't compare Scripture with Scripture. We understand that the watchman's efforts alone can't cause a sinner to repent or to draw him to the Savior. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit whenever we witness for the Lord. Unless God instructs me specifically to do so, the best approach is not always to go around blasting my trumpet, screaming at people, telling them they're going to hell. Last year at the Masters, there was a man there at the entry gate with a megaphone in hand. He was screaming at people to repent or go to hell. I'm sure 99% of the crowd viewed him as a nuisance. In fact, I, even I couldn't help but to think this guy was doing more harm than good. See, some folks read this passage and they witness just to get the monkey off their back. 
just to get the burden off their back, relieve their responsibility, rather than be strategic in their reaching of others. The better approach is to be led by the Holy Spirit. Rather than just barge into a person's life, we should be sensitive to God's Spirit and to God's timing. It's been said, the person who doesn't use tact will lose contact. But there does remain a responsibility to speak and to warn. If you know God, if you're privy to information that people within your walls might lack, you're a lookout. And if you don't speak out, their blood will be on your hands. You can't just dismiss this passage as a quaint Old Testament idea that no longer applies to New Testament believers. For in Acts chapter 20, verse 26, the Apostle Paul drew on this concept from Ezekiel when he said to the Ephesian elders, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Paul had fulfilled his responsibilities as a watchman on the wall, and thus he was free of other people's blood. Not all people will respond to us positively, but we as God's watchmen should faithfully sound the alarm. Verse 10, Therefore you, son of, O son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us, and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Now notice Ezekiel's expression here, pine away. It means to waste away. And isn't that what sin does? Sin eats away at what's good. Our sanity, virtue, dignity, self-worth. Sin wears a person down. It has a deteriorating and a demoralizing effect. Sin is like a cancer in the soul. Ultimately, it diminishes a person's enjoyment of life. And in verse 11, we hear from a heartbroken God. God says, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Why should God's people pine away in their sin? God was ready. God was willing to forgive them. He takes no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked. God is not some vindictive God who gets his jollies by watching folks fry in hell. He loves people, even sinners. And he pleads for them to turn from their evil ways and follow him. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 echoes Ezekiel and once again reveals God's heart. It says, The Lord is not willing that any should perish that all should come to repentance. And then verse 12 tells us, Therefore you, O son of man, say to the children of your people, The righteousness of the righteous man shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall because of it in the day that he turns from his wickedness. Nor shall the righteous be able to live because of his righteousness in the day that he sins. In other words, yesterday's experience doesn't count toward tomorrow's evaluation. Yesterday's experience doesn't count toward tomorrow's evaluation. Say you walked the aisle when you were 10 years old and you prayed the sinner's prayer. But for the last 25 years, you've ignored God and you've lived in rebellion. Don't expect what you did in the past to count toward the future. Likewise, you may have spent the last 50 years raising hell and bucking God. But tonight, if you confess your sin and sincerely repent, God will forgive you fully. Yesterday's experiences are important in that they create a momentum in our lives. We build from grace to grace to grace. But God evaluates us all on our current condition. What I did yesterday is of no value if it doesn't translate into faith today. And the years I spent in rebellion, though they certainly wasted years, it still doesn't mean that I can't turn around my destiny today, tonight. See, it is the current attitude of our heart that matters to God. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul speaks of the Christian life as a race. 
He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. As in any race, the main point is what? It's to finish. You can't win if you don't finish. And this is true of the Christian life. You can get off to a quick start. Oh, you can run well for three quarters of the race. But if you tire, if you give up, if you drop out, you failed. This is true spiritually. Faith is a race that needs to cross the finish line. As Paul said, I have kept the faith. Once my dad were out, he and I were out playing golf. We were at the ninth tee box at Mystery Valley. I'll never forget it. When we were joined by another golfer about my dad's age. Two of them, they were talking. I was sitting over in the cart. When all of a sudden, the fellow asked my dad, he said, Hey, he said, what do your sons do for a living? Well, dad answered. He said, well, they're both pastors. The man was ecstatic. He said, wow, I bet you're proud of your boys. I'll never forget my dad's reply. He said it loud enough for me to hear. So far. (laughs) That's Ezekiel's message. What you are is only what you are so far. You're righteous if you're walking in faith today. You're wicked if you're living with your back to God today. Yesterday and tomorrow don't really count. What matters is are we current with God today? He continues in verse 13. When I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, but he trusts in his own righteousness and commits iniquity, none of his righteous works shall be remembered. But because of the iniquity that he has committed, he shall die. And when I say to the wicked, you, are surely, you shall surely die, if he turns from his sin and does what is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge and gives back what he has stolen and walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, then he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins which he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is lawful and right. He shall surely live. Notice here, restitution is part of genuine repentance. When this wicked man turns from his sin, he doesn't just mouth a prayer. He doesn't just shed a tear. Notice what he does. He pays back what he's stolen. He changes the way he lives. He does something about it. This is why we know that that evil tax collector Zacchaeus, the little short guy, we know he was converted. You know why? Because after his dinner with Jesus, he paid back the money he had defrauded fourfold. Verse 17 continues, he says, Yet the children of your people say, The way of the Lord is not fair, but it is their way which is not fair. Their way which is not fair. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, he shall die because of it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and does what is lawful and right, he shall live because of it. Yet you say, The way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, I will judge every one of you according to his own ways. See, apparently there were some Jews in Babylon who were blaming God for their captivity. As if the fall of Jerusalem was somehow God's fault. As if God had fallen asleep at the helm. But God is assuring Ezekiel that what's happened to the Jews is the direct result of their own behavior. You know, one of the evidences of true repentance is the willingness to accept the consequences of my sin. You know, too many people, they, they want to cast blame. Or they'll admit their sin only because they don't want to suffer the consequences or they want to be removed from the burden of the consequences. No real repentance accepts the consequences of what I've done. Real repentance is when we stop casting blame and we realize that we are where we are because of our own sin. It's the arrogant man who gets warned and warned of punishment and ignores it And then when it occurs, he has the nerve to whine and accuse God of being unfair to him. And this is what the Jews were doing to Ezekiel. Ezekiel has to address this issue. Now remember in chapter 24, Ezekiel was called on as God's representative to make the ultimate sacrifice. You remember God was heartbroken over the fall of Jerusalem. And the death of his spiritual wife, Judah, his people. 
And so to illustrate God's grief, you remember Ezekiel's wife died. She died the exact day that the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem began. If God's wife was going to die, then Ezekiel's wife died. And there was more. For on that same day, God made Ezekiel mute. God's spokesman was unable to speak. And for 23 months, Ezekiel was silent in regards to the destiny of his people, the Jews. See, this was all God's judgment of Jerusalem. Here they were. An invading army was laying siege to their city. Their citizens were starving inside the walls. And the prophet of God was silent. See, they had already received the warnings that they failed to, to heed. And so now God is silent. It was a dark, painful 23 months for the Jewish people. But in verse 21, Ezekiel tells us what happened at the end of those 23 months. And it came to pass in the 12th year of our captivity, in the 10th month, on the 5th day of the month, that one who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has been captured. One of the men of Jerusalem had escaped. He had somehow eluded the invading Babylonians, and he had traveled the 900 miles to Babylon to report to Ezekiel what had happened. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me the evening before the man came who had escaped, and he had opened my mouth. And so when he came to me in the morning, my mouth was opened, and I was no longer mute. By the time this man arrives, God has reopened Ezekiel's mouth. Ezekiel is speaking again. But this time, he's given a different message, a different tone and tenor. Jerusalem's judgment is now history. The captivity of the Jews is now a done deal. So now, Ezekiel will begin to speak of their restoration. And this becomes the theme of the succeeding chapters, really the rest of the book of Ezekiel. He has to deal with a few details here first. But when we get to chapter 36, we'll see that from here to the end of the book, he extols and encourages the Jews by making promises to them of God's future restoration, how he will bring them back to the land and bless them there. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, they who inhabit those ruins in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, and he inherited the land. But we are many. The land has been given to us as a possession. Now remember, there were false prophets who, had, who despite the warnings of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, had predicted that God would deliver Jerusalem. Now in the wake of the city's destruction, you would think they would admit their lies, that they were wrong. Not so. Instead, like any good politician, they try to spin the truth. And they offer an interpretation of the events that had transpired, a different interpretation. This is what they basically say. Initially, God gave the land to one man, Abraham. But Abraham's family has grown to a population of millions of people. God wanted a smaller group to possess the land. And so the destruction of Jerusalem was God's way of thinning out the ranks, not showing his disapproval. God intended for us to now inhabit the land. In verse 25, Ezekiel responds to their spin. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord God, You eat meat with blood. You lift up your eyes toward your idols, and you shed blood. Should you then possess the land? You guys have been following idols. You've been disobeying the law. Do you really think you deserve the land, to dwell in the land? You rely on your sword. You commit abominations and you defile one another's wives. Should you then possess the land? You're not only an idolater, you're an adulterer. Do you really think God has preserved this land for you? It was their sin that had disqualified the Jews from possessing the land. Sin was the reason for the destruction of the city and their captivity. Say thus to them, Thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely those who are in the ruins shall fall by the sword, and the one who is in the open field 
I will give to the beasts to be devoured, and those who are in the strongholds and caves shall die of the pestilence. In other words, even the Jews that had managed to escape and remain in the land will eventually die as well. God isn't calling out a select few to take over the holy city. No, judgment is upon the heads of all these men. He says, For I will make the land most desolate. Her arrogant strength shall cease, and the mountains of Israel shall be so desolate that no one will pass through. Then they shall know that I am the Lord, when I have made the land most desolate because of all their abominations which they have committed. Verse 30. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, Please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. People were talking about Ezekiel. Man, you need to come and hear what this guy has to say. And so they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people. And they hear your words. But they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love. But their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, surely it will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. As we've seen, Ezekiel was a colorful character. We call him the stuntman of the Bible. God gave Ezekiel these bizarre skits to act out in front of the people. These spiritual skits or living parables were visual aids to illustrate God's lessons to his people. You remember some of Ezekiel's theatrics. Remember he laid on his side for 430 days? He dug a hole in the wall of his house and kept moving in and out, in and out. People thought, man, is he nuts? He built a little model of the city of Jerusalem and took some toy soldiers and started acting out a battle. At one point, he pounded his fist and stamped his feet. Ezekiel's whole life was intended to be a sign to the people. Apparently, Pastor Ezekiel never had a problem getting people to church. His sermons were exciting. Everybody wanted to know what Ezekiel would do next. It would also seem that he was a moving speaker. He was a great communicator. Notice what God calls him here. A very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice. People love to come and listen to Ezekiel's sermons. And yet here was the problem. People listened, but they didn't obey. Oh, Ezekiel was entertaining. He was eloquent. But that didn't mean that folks were applying what they heard. And it wasn't Ezekiel's fault. He was a gifted communicator. But the effectiveness of the preacher doesn't always guarantee the obedience of the hearers. Hey, every pastor needs to be an effective spokesman. But people can applaud, yet not apply. People can applaud, but not apply. And it's possible to come to Calvary Chapel every week, week after week. You're entertained by the music. Wow, it's good. These guys are good. You're captivated by the pastor's incredible jokes. You love the style of the teaching. You know, oh man, we go verse by verse. Man, we tell it like it is at Calvary Chapel. You're enthralled by what you hear and receive, but you never apply what you hear. It's possible. See, if the weeks go by, if they pass, and we remain unchanged, our lives are no better than when we started. It's of no value that we came. As James 1 tells us, we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Ezekiel would agree. Chapter 34. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flocks. In this chapter, Ezekiel speaks to the shepherds of Israel, that is, the leaders of the people, especially their spiritual leaders, the priests and the prophets of God's people. 
You remember in pre-fall Jerusalem, and among the Jews now in exile, false prophets were a plague. There were men who claimed to speak for God who only spouted their own ideas and their wishful thinking and their excuses. They were looking out only for themselves, using God for selfish gain. A true shepherd feeds the flock, not himself. You remember after his resurrection, Jesus came to Peter and he renewed Peter's calling. You remember he told him three times there by the Sea of Galilee, feed my lambs, tend, that is nurture my sheep, feed my sheep. If any pastor truly loves Jesus, this will be his top priority. He'll want to feed God's people. He'll want to feed God's people with God's word. And yet Ezekiel speaks of the shepherds of Israel. He says, you eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. You guys are busy feeding yourselves, not feeding the flock of God. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Rather than be tender, these leaders had been tyrants. They were more about ruling over others than coming alongside them and offering help. You recall Luke chapter 4. Early in Jesus' ministry, he returned to his hometown of Nazareth. And there was great speculation over Jesus' intentions. This was early in his ministry. People didn't really know what he was up to. Who was this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And that day in the synagogue, the Lord quoted from Isaiah and revealed his intentions for his ministry. And this is what he said. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, that the time for this is now, not later. And this is just still Jesus' intentions, to bring good news, to heal us, to deliver us, to open our eyes, to set us free. In fact, anyone who aspires to be a shepherd, that is a pastor in God's flock, needs to share these intentions. This needs to be a pastor's heartbeat. And yet the false shepherds of Ezekiel's day had the opposite intention. They ignored the weak. They discounted the broken and the outcast and the lost. Rather than serve and show compassion, they ruled God's flock cruelly and forcibly. Notice verse 5. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. See, when God's people lack a shepherd who cares for them, who feeds the flock, they're inevitably scattered. They fall prey to evil men. And this is what had happened to the Jews in Ezekiel's day. He says, My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill, Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. And God is going to judge these shepherds now. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouths, and they may no longer be food for them. And notice the personal pronouns here. Notice twice God calls the flock my flock. God gets very defensive when someone's taking advantage of his people. When you mistreat God's people, the Lord takes it personally. And then verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, 
Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. At that moment, God was looking down from heaven on the people of Israel and Judah, his once unified flock. He saw them as sheep that had been scattered over the hills. They had fallen victim to the abuse and the negligence of these false shepherds. And here God is promising to come himself and gather up his people and return them to his sheepfold. Rather than rely on the shepherds of Israel, he's going to do it himself now. And when did this happen? How about when Jesus came to earth? In John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself what? The good shepherd. And in so doing, Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of this prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34. Verse 13. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel and the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in, good fold, in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. What a beautiful picture. God will feed his flock. And God will give them rest. You know, shepherds say it's impossible to force a sheep to lie down. Sheep recline only when they're content and at peace. In fact, to lie down, a sheep has to be free of four irritations. Free of predators. Or the fear of predators. Free of friction with other sheep. Free of famine. They need plenty of food. And free of flies. Irritations. Things bugging them. And Jesus frees us from the same irritations, does he not? He frees us from fear. Perfect love casts out fear. He frees us from friction. We can love one another. He frees us from famine. He meets our needs and fills our souls with his word. And he frees us from flies. When you know Jesus, things just fly away. Stuff stops bugging you when you know Jesus. Jesus is a good shepherd. He allows his sheep to lie down and rest. And then verse 16. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. In other words, he'll do all these things that the false shepherds failed to do. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. And as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Now realize the problem was not just with the shepherds. For God's flock was also at fault. You see, some of his flock had gotten fat, apparently. They had become overindulgent. And God is now weeding out the righteous from the self-righteous. You remember back in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 31, the scathing indictment that Jeremiah made. He said, the prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. Oh yeah, the prophets were wicked, the priests were wicked. But the people also bear responsibility. He says, the prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so. The prophets and the priests were partners in crime. But the people also bore responsibility. And this happens today. Some false preachers, they get propped up by their congregations. The people like their message. Even though it's false, it tickles their ears. They like to hear hear what's being said, even though they know it's false. And so they prop up the false preacher. How do you think the false preacher gets away with it? People support him. People give to him. 
Those people are in error. And God says that He's going to judge between sheep and sheep, between ram and goats. He's going to judge the people as well who prop up these false shepherds. And then verse 18. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture? Here again, these are mistakes that the people had made and the sheep had made. And to have drunk of the clear waters that you must foul the residue with your feet? And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet, and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. There were bullies in the flock. There were sheep that liked to butt out others. And the good shepherd is going to judge the sheep as well as the shepherd. Like their teachers. Some of these sheep were only out for themselves. That's why they left nothing in the pasture for other sheep. That's why they fouled the waters that the other sheep were supposed to drink with their dirty hooves. You know, it's sad when so-called Christians only care about themselves. In some churches, there's too much budding and trampling and pushing going on. The weaker sheep get left with trampled grass and with muddy water. A few are served rather than the whole flock prospering. This is why Paul told the Corinthians to make sure that the weaker members of the body receive the greater honor. That no one should be left out in the family of God. No one should be mistreated. We all should be looking out for each other and working toward the common good. And then verse 23. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. You realize this whole passage deals with Israel's restoration. But what's involved is more than just the regathering of scattered sheep. God did bring back the Jews to their land. And Jesus did come as their good shepherd. But the rest of Ezekiel describes blessings that have yet to be fulfilled. The rest of this book is eschatological. It speaks of the end times when Jesus returns to earth a second time to establish a physical, tangible, political kingdom. And in that day... As we read here in verse 23, there will be one shepherd over them. In God's future kingdom, His people will be ruled and fed by one shepherd. We're told that prince or that royal ruler is God's servant, David. And there are two ways to understand this reference to David. First, it could be that in the future kingdom... David will have a position of rulership on the earth. He will rule under and behalf of King Jesus. But the second way to interpret this is to think of the name David as the title of the leader of the Davidic dynasty. Remember, Jesus, the Messiah, is to be king from the line of David. He's called the son of David. Jesus will rule over the Davidic dynasty. Just as the terms Caesar and Pharaoh were once names that were later turned into titles, David might also be a dynastic name, a dynastic title. It's interesting, one of the Jewish Targums, which are rabbinical commentaries on the Old Testament, actually interprets the word David here as Messiah. If that's true, the term David would then mean the ideal David, or the lead David, which is the son of David, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Two ways to interpret it. Verse 25, I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Israel will one day be a peaceful place. You'll be able to go out and sleep in the woods. I'm not even sure you can do that around my house. 
I will make them in the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season, and there shall be showers of blessing. And wouldn't that make for a great song lyric? Showers of blessings. Showers of blessings we need. Mercy drops round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. I should write a song. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land nor bear the shame of the Gentiles anymore. We're going to talk a lot about this next week. What's taken place in the land of Israel over the last 100 years. How the Jews have turned the wilderness into a virtual garden. Today, the land of Israel is a garden of renown. Just as Ezekiel said it would be. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. A glorious future awaits God's flock. In the meantime, God promises in Jeremiah 3, verse 15, I will give you shepherds according to my heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. You know, one day all pastors will yield to the chief shepherd. They'll do what Jesus wants us to do and feed the flock. Until then, a pastor who wants to be a shepherd according to God's heart is one who will faithfully feed God's word to God's people. Chapter 35. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it. Mount Seir was a synonym for Edom. Edomites were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And you remember the choice that God made. In Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, a passage that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9, God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now God didn't hate Esau in a literal sense. Malachi is here using a figure of speech, a hyperbole. He exaggerates for emphasis. What he's saying is that in comparison to God's love for Jacob, his love for Esau looked like hate. God just chose Jacob over Esau. He loved him that much more. It's not that God disdained Esau. He just had a special affection for Jacob. That is, Jacob's descendants, Israel. But Edom became bitter over God's choice. He could have rejoiced with his brother over his place in God's family. But Edom became jealous. Israel and Edom became perpetual enemies. And so when Babylon invaded Jerusalem, Edom rejoiced in his brother's suffering. Ezekiel says to Edom, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you most desolate. I shall lay your cities waste, and you shall be desolate. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have had an ancient hatred, and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, when their iniquity came to an end. Notice, Edom had an ancient hatred. Literally, a perpetual, an everlasting hatred. She could never shake the bitterness that she experienced. They nursed an old grudge. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you. Since you have not hated blood, therefore blood shall pursue you. And this is a play on words. Edom means red, which is the color of blood. And God is saying Edom's name hints at Edom's destiny, that red blood will be spilled. And thus I will make Mount Seir most desolate, and cut off from it the one who leaves and the one who returns. And I will fill its mountains with the slain, On your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines, those are slain by the sword shall fall. I will make you perpetually desolate and your cities shall be uninhabited. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine. 
we will possess them. Oh, the Lord was not there. Edom had boasted that they would take over both Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Even when they knew that God had chosen Jacob, they were arrogant. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to your anger and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all your blasphemies which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are desolate. They are given to us to consume. Thus with your mouth you have boasted against me and multiplied your words against me. I have heard them. Don't ever forget God hears everything we say. Don't ever forget that. From the idle boast to the arrogant rant. Don't ever forget God hears what comes out of your mouth. Don't ever forget God reads all your posts. He reads all your blogs. He hears all you say. Thus says the Lord God, the whole earth will rejoice when I make you desolate. Edom's sin was the failure to recognize God's blessing on his brother. And thus Edom rejoiced when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. Edom laughed at what caused God grief. This is why, don't ever kick a brother when he's down. It was because Edom did that the earth will rejoice at her desolation. As you rejoice because the inheritance of the house of Israel was desolate, so I will do to you, you shall be desolate, O Mount Seir, as well as all of Edom, all of it. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. After the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, guess where they turned? King Nebuchadnezzar turned southeast to Edom. Just as God predicted, Mount Seir came to the bloody end at the sword of the Babylonians. Proving the old adage, what goes around, comes around. Just ask Edom. 